I am really lucky to have our, our core team is wildly talented and also has such a, an important diversity of experience in the kids media and tech space. So we kind of like talk about what it means to be a makefully person, because there has to be some element of you're really good at what you do, but also not afraid to like dip in and like jump over and, and help out in other ways or want to, right? Like, so my whole team is incredibly creative. We all have a love and motivation to be involved in the storytelling and kind of art and design process, though we're not all artists, right? So, there, but there's like a lot of like us as a creative team, we're really strong in that space, but we're also very strong technically. Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, I get the pleasure to talk to Anna Jordan-Douglas. Anna's a PhD and founder and chief creative officer of Makefully Studios. I, oh, I was jealous of this conversation. I'm not going to lie. Anna's background working with PBS and Jim Henson, and then going into making Makefully, and the apps and, and experiences and games and storylines and universes that she gets to create for children and their parents and that audience is just inspiring. I think you're gonna love this conversation. She is endlessly curious, fueled by big ideas and loves to laugh. She's inspired by her kids, including her own three and how they play and her work aims to bridge research practices and learning through play. So we get a chance to talk about play, creativity, teams, the business of it all, and how at the end of the day, it's hard work, but it's really good work. So I am uh, excited for this and I think you are gonna be too. So let's jump right in. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm super excited to talk to you. Why don't you do a real quick introduction to our audience and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm Anna Jordan Douglas. Uh, I am the um, owner, founder, and chief creative officer of Makefully. Um, and we specialize in the design and development of playful learning environments, uh, which is primarily focused around digital interactive play, um, but extends into any area where we can help uh, support a kid in learning through play. Oh, okay. So there's, there's a thousand different ways we could go with that because I imagine that is both exciting, but also probably challenging, right? There's probably a lot to navigate there. So give me an example of what play looks like? What does play look like in your mind when you define that with your, your customer, or with your client? Yeah. Great question. Um, so there's a couple, a couple ways, uh, to think, I think about framing that, um, we do work both in informal, uh, education and formal education In informal, a lot of our work also tends to be for the preschool or early early childhood end, so four to eight-year-olds, uh, where play is still an active part of a child's day. Uh, they're learning all the time outside of learning their ABCs and one, two, threes. They're learning all the time through play, right? And just how to be a, be a person. <laughs> um, and a lot of the work we do for that age range is in the form of digital games. Uh, we do a lot of work for PBS Kids, for example. And so we're always kind of complementing what a, a show is trying to do with their television content. Um, to take take threads and core learning goals and build play around that that um, helps them have a hands-on practice of, of the concept um, and ideally extends back off the screen into their real world and gives them something to keep going with is our ultimate goal always. Um, and on the formal education side, when we're designing things that are used or intend, intended for classroom use or for a teacher to be kind of managing a, um, you know, some kind of uh, curricular area or lesson of sorts with a classroom, play looks really different. And it's something we're always advocating for is uh, play should happen for all ages, grownups too. Mm. We should all be playing more. We should all be like embracing that as an approach to learning. And so there's different ways that that, different ways to think about what that looks like in the context of a classroom though. And so um, in some ways it might be thinking about it through like an arts lens of like, what does it look like if we just play with materials and making and like, and uh, kind of constructing ideas and understanding through something, or it could be 
features of gamification or other things that feel add a layer of engagement to what the what the intention is of the digital experience. Um, and so I think that's something that long term we'd love to keep advocating and pushing for is especially in the in the um, eight to 12 year olds, figuring out ways to keep play active and intentional and advocating that kids should still be playing at that age. And then um, and then the next tier will be like teenagers and adults and making sure everyone's playing uh, as much as they should be. <laughs> I love it. I love the idea of play because I think that is something that for me, play has this direct draw towards curiosity. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, ultimately, it's about learning, right? So how do we make sense of the world? How do we understand the, the way things work? How do we understand how I can participate in the way things work? And it sounds to me like you get an opportunity to figure out how do you use creativity, design, technology, et cetera, as a means to engage specifically kids, children in that, but also potentially a, a broader audience. Cause I'm, I'm all about that. Like this is something we talk about at Crema, not just the, you know, play hard, work hard kind of thing, but also like, Hey, be comfortable experimenting, mm -hmm. be comfortable trying, be comfortable taking a risk and failing. And yes. all of that comes through play, um, which I think is something really powerful. So I'm curious when someone comes to you with an idea, so you have a, a client that approaches you, what's kind of your, your approach? What's kind of your process to break, break an idea down to say, okay, here's how my, we might make something that really engages that that user, that audience. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell me what that looks like. Yeah. So for us, almost everything that we take on either has like a uh, defined learning goal or outcome attached to it or an intention for positive change in the world. And so yeah. we always start with that at the core of like what that, what that initial intention is of like, what is the, what is the hope that that, that the, in the ways that kids are changed on the other side of this from understanding a concept or having a different exposure to it or um, new ways to explain it. And so once we have like a really good understanding of that, we then go through an exercise of like, what does it look like to, you know, the thinking about like a mechanics approach to how we achieve it or what the play around that looks like sometimes comes from like, well, how do kids do that in their day-to-day off screen play. Like there's Ooh, certain yeah. things inspired by that's like, well, that's how a kid would play with that. Or the kids are really inspired by this kind of play. What if we wrap that around this to create a new, like, um, an, a new way to integrate, you know, an approach to, um, problem solving, let's say, or, um, you know, a new way to think about interacting with a science concept. Um, and so it all, it becomes a marriage from the very beginning of like uh, the, the like kind of the the concept document around what something should be is like first and foremost thinking about like the ways that those mechanics and the play um don't mask or get in the way of the the learning and so yeah. and that's like harder said than or it, it's harder to do than it is to I speak bet, yeah yeah like making sure that the play doesn't supersede the learning right it's easy to be like let's just make a platformer game and it's like well but how are you making sure that you've you're like getting to the core of the concept with that, if you're just kind of collecting mm -hmm. objects, right? And in some cases that can work, but it's not, you can't just kind of one for one be like, it's this game. <laughs> so a lot of what we do is coming up with like novel mechanics, new play patterns, because it helps like us approach those learning goals in different ways. Um, that's also where trust in the process and like getting our, our partners on board with us becomes tricky because sometimes it's not like, it's just like this thing. Cause we're trying to make something that isn't like anything else. Right. We're right. trying to come up with new approaches. So, um, so um, I think it's, uh, again, it, it depends on like the use case, how, if it's informal or formal learning and if it, what age specifically for, but um, uh, there's, there's always that at least, core, like not losing sight of what the core, like learning goal or experience is intended to do first and kind of wrapping around that. I think did that's I just go off on a, uh, did I answer the question? I'm sorry. No, you're great. That was great. That's great. <laughs> okay. sorry. I, I think, I think what's, what's awesome about that is it's, it's similar, right? So I'm, you know, a lot of the folks that we talk to are really thinking about making, you know, either a SaaS product or a uh, business solution. And what you're, what you're, 
referring to is the exact same challenge, which is we have to be focused on why we're doing this, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be focused on what's the intended outcome because there's no reason you can't make another uh, a runner game, right? Where it's like, okay, cool, get all the coins as you run away from the thing that's chasing you because there's 17,000 different ver versions of that, the minion rush or whatever, or mm -hmm. temple rush. Yep. But creating something that is both new, I love that you use the word novel. I think novelty is a really powerful tool I think um, the hum humanity has has kind of sought after novelty, um, especially in a modern age of trying to figure out how we make sense of things by finding modern ways to look at things or, or novel ways to look at things, and especially kids because they're inundated with so many technology opportunities. You have a really competitive attention span to 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 capture with your audience. Um, and then ultimately saying, hey, it is more fun for you to go learn than it is for you to go be entertained. But we believe that maybe you can bo do both, I think is what I'm hearing, is, is that you can use that novelty, which is entertaining, to actually get to a point or an outcome or a learning or a, um, a, a different way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is truly like one of the biggest barriers for us when we think about the eight to 12 year olds in particular is that they're moving into more freedom of choice of what they do when they have access to screens, what they, uh, how they can convince parents like to have access to new things. And so with, with the younger kids, a lot of it is still, um, the parent helping make a choice of what the kid plays and the kid will play it because that's the, that's what they've been given permission for during their yeah. screen time and with the older kids in that competition. It is, it is, it is something I so desperately want to tackle and figure out is exactly that. Like, how can we convince kids to climb into something by choice that is, that is also has learning at the core and isn't when they've got everything, you know, everything else at their fingertips. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, it's, it is, uh, it, that, that reminds is like me a little bit of, it reminds me a little bit of, do you know, are you familiar with Mark Rober, uh, yeah. YouTuber? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. him being crunch labs and creating yeah. both a, engineering focused outcome, right? Where yep. he has boxes that has the, you know, you put these things together, and, but also there's the digital app experience. It's going to give you a kind of learning management system. If we were to think about it in like a technical sense, yep. it's an LMS basically, but that engages the kids to say, learn these principles as you're firing a little disc across the room or as you're yes. making a catapult or whatever that is. I think it's a kind of a, a, an interesting example of merging that learning entertainment um, experimentation towards both the physical and digital. Yep. It's so hard to do though. I, I still wonder like, yeah, how long is the shelf life for those experiences for those right. kids? You know, yep. um, they get the crunch law box and are, is it, do they put it, is it gone by the next day or is it something they engage with on a regular basis and find, Oh no, I really want to keep coming back to this. Right. And then my other, the question I also have is then the, the long tail of that, right? Like what, yeah. what was sparked for them in that moment that they carried with them? the two years later or into their high school interests yeah. or whatever, right. As, as, uh, as we this think a lot becomes something they're really interested in because of it. Yes, exactly. And I think that like a lot of our work, we're thinking about the, the STEM pipeline challenge and how do we get young kids interested in science? But like, that's one thing to interest you when you're four, eight, 12, mm. how do you sustain that interest, especially for girls when you're 14, 16, 18, 20, <laughs> making your choices of, yeah. of what you want to focus on. Um, and I think that that is, you know, again, thinking about all the like big uh, long-term challenges that are kind of hang around us as important to think about are, are those also of like, what is the, what is the long tail of all of this? Like, how does this, what is the, how are we sparking like lifelong, you know, learning opportunities and things that kids might be like really, because we know that we know media has that impact, right? That's the, been the sure. greatest honor of working on shows like Dinosaur Train or Sid the Science Kid. Those are the first kids shows I worked on. Yes. Interacting with kids that are now teenagers. When I tell them like, oh, I made, because that now, you know, when that's like eight or 10 years ago, I was doing some of that work. These are big kids now. And they'll be like, oh my, what? You, you know, and the impact of that. And they, they like, don't just remember the fun of it. They're like, oh, I learned so much about blah from doing yes. that. Yes. Like, oh, my daughter will, for sure my kids remember dinosaur train that was their yeah. era for sure yeah. and science kid uh that's yeah. fantastic okay well then maybe that that's like that's a good uh transition i i wanted to kind of sh you know give us a shape for kind of what you do now i want to take you back to 
how did you get into this? How did, how did this become a thing? Um, especially being, I mean, I did, didn't even connect the dots that like were not that far from each other, yet you're doing this incredible work with these big brands and these big experiences. Tell me more about how you got into that world. Yeah. Um, so it really, it kind of, the origin story has to go back to my first job in media at um, the PBS station in Los Angeles. Um, so I was in LA for about 12 years uh, total. And early on in my time there, um, I, I, I have a master's in journalism and I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to do with that. I thought I wanted to be a writer, which was the purpose of getting the master's. But like that is uh, translating that into like what that looks like as a job I was struggling with. And I didn't want to do things that didn't have like uh, some kind of impact attached to it. And I was really inspired by the PBS content slate and educational media. But as a grown up, right, we would watch a lot of the PBS content like in our as our evening TV. And so I, I applied for a random job at the station and and um, and the HR head of HR called and she was like, that isn't a good. It was like viewer services or something that was like, just get me in the door. I'll, I'll show you what I can do. Thankfully, there was an opening in the new media department at the station. And that scrappy little team was like the best learning ground ever because I was doing every form of production. Like I had to mm. I had to I was I I got. I got the job because my master's degree had been print broadcast and online journalism. And so I'd had to do some coding classes. Like we were coding our own blogs from scratch to learn how to like, I got so caught up in the making of the blog. They were like, you also have to write the content. And I was like, oh, I'm (laughs) right. I'm in a journalism program, of course. (laughs) So, um, so anyway, I had enough, like I had enough of a broad skill set that I was a good match for that position. So cut to, um, the uh, around 2007, a um, a co-production had formed between the KCT, the station I was at, and the Jim Henson Company, which was Sid the Science Kid. And yep. so the way that works is the Jim Henson Company was overseeing all of the show development, but the PBS station is kind of the host uh, and pathway into a PBS nationally distributed show. And we yeah. were responsible for all of the digital components and the education, uh, uh, their education team was housed out of, of KCET. And so I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me like to work in like cartoons and games had not occurred to me until that moment. And it was a, oh my, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. This is it. It was just kind of given to me, like the thing that it was like unlocked all the, cause I considered being a teacher. I was like really trying to figure out what, you know, what I wanted my long-term to be. So um, shortly after that, so I was working on that first as an associate producer. Over time, I became the lead producer on it. Um, and then uh, Dinosaur Train came through from the Jim Henson Company and, and the station wasn't involved in it, but they were looking for a digital producer. And I, and I was like, me, put me on it. And they did. And then eventually, so I kept doing it. And then there was another, another digital only property that the Jim Henson Company had for PBS Kids that I was the producer of. And so over time, I moved over to the Jim Henson Company full time. Okay. Um, yeah. Then while there, I became the vice president of digital development and interactive media. And so I was overseeing all of our day-to-day production on all those properties, plus more things like Fraggle Rock, um, Doozers, wow. which was a, which was a preschool spinoff of Fraggle Rock. Um, uh, what else? Like uh, we had so many kids properties in production. I would oversee all the day-to-day digital production for all those properties. And then also things from the archive, like the dark crystal. I got to be, create a fan site oh, for the dark no. crystol. Which was we right. can't, we don't have enough time <laughs> to go. It was so great. Basically the gist is I was given the most incredible education on developing yeah. really amazing, thoughtful, engaging content for kids, plus fandom, a study in fandom because it's a Jim Henson company. Yeah. Everything is just oh, like yeah. comes with that layer of my, he's Jim Henson's my own personal hero. You know, it's like, was it, it, I could not ever, um, say enough about the honor it was to work there for so long and like be in the position. Oh, I can I imagine. It's amazing. Um, but around, I left in 2015 because I was getting an itch to do my own thing. And I was starting to be, because of the role I was in, I was part of my job was, was business development and figuring out new partnerships. And so I was exploring projects with, um, tech companies and like thinking a lot about what the future of AR and VR and, um, just mm-hmm. like immersive, like imagining how technology could lead to kind of hands-on learning. 
And so yeah. I just got fixated on thinking about what does it look like if we start from different questions of like designing solutions that kind of bring together what I understand from being a producer with like what te where technology is going and educational research. So in 2015, I left Henson to go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to get my PhD um, wow. and um, was in Madison for two years before we moved back to Kansas City. And along that route, founded Makefully. Um, and so, which became, you know, I was consulting. The, the, when I left Henson, I was had a foot in kids media the whole time while I was still, when I, when I was doing research and teaching. At well, you weren't going to stop know. doing that work. No. Yeah. Right. And I was like, it was like critical for me not to lose any momentum. Right. Keep my, yeah. keep every yeah. keep a foot in that like actively. And so, um, so makefully really grew out of um, first my own consulting work and that kind of initial premise of like, what does it look like if we kind of bridge research and practice from a different lens and like that I'm both a researcher and like learning scientist married with a kids producer brings a unique lens to this playful learning integration, right? Where it's like, how do we honor play and fun with how people learn through media and technology? So um, that really was the foundation um, for Makefully. And then, and then we were able to keep getting projects and grow the team from there. <laughs> I mean, I love every a bit of that. And I'm, very jealous of uh, such an incredible experience uh, to be able to be close to that world. I mean, obviously there's so many of us that grew up with those things shaping us. Like you said, it's, it's really, it was formational, especially for maybe a particular age group. And now it's, it's changed, right? So, because the, we had such limited options in the eighties and nineties, which is when I was growing up, mm -hmm. but we were shaped by those. And then seeing our kids grow up, we were a PBS family as well, right? So we 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 definitely. I mean, I don't think we had we didn't have cable. Um, we we cut cable a long time ago, and so PBS was the one thing you could get locally, and it was pretty much safe for your kids to watch it. And it was just this like incredible resource for us as young parents. Going, I trust this, right. which was a huge factor. Trust was trust is a really strange thing when you think about media and content and interaction and um, yeah, and education. And, and so I think it's, it's fascinating that you got to have this experience uh, coming through just such a rich learning um, environment and also creative and play and business, because I think we forget how, how incredibly integrated all those things are in the Jen Henson or PBS world universe is that it's not just make cool things and hopefully somebody will be interested. It's like make cool things that, that teach and learn. And also it has to be business viable and and like what a what an awesome opportunity i'm yeah. i'm jealous i'll yeah. be honest yeah. <laughs> no, I, i'm i'm so lucky to um to to like have my dream job right like i'm so lucky yeah. to have that yeah. um yeah really interesting you you just touched on i kind of forget that along that journey too of going from like we like producing web games like the ipad came into the world and thinking about like what is the app yeah. what are what are apps as a business model right which was really hard to figure out for everyone but in the kids space every, you know i mean for everyone you make it's really hard. it has from the beginning of time been difficult to charge for apps on the app store because so they become unsustainable as a business yeah. model or unsustainable because yeah, they're very expensive to not only make but to sustain yes yes and so it's been it's been interesting the arc of all of that and then the evolution of ed tech on top of that and like what that has looked like as as perceptions of how to use technology in the classroom have changed wildly in the last few years, especially because of COVID, but already we're changing yeah. and then like really changed and finding the footing in that. Um, and, and people are getting savvier, but also, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it kind of changes like the ways you think about and approach um, the, the design and the, and the use case keeps evolving, right. For like how we use all of that. Yeah, you have to evolve with it. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to shift gears a little bit. So that's that's incredible because I mean I want to I have so many questions about that that whole storyline. But to move us forward, I want to talk a little bit about your team or the way that you think about team your team approach towards doing this work. Because if I'm thinking right, 
I'm imagining because I, 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 you know, I haven't sat with you and your team and kind of seen the way that you work, but I have to imagine you've got everything from, or whether it's in-house or um, in contract, or maybe it's on the client side or it's part of your IP or whatever, but you're going to have storytellers, copywriters, you're going to have illustrators, animators, you're going to have game designers, you're going to have app developers, you're going to have web app, you know, data mining. I mean, business case uh, scenario. I mean, like, so what does a team look like for you when you start thinking about bringing a group in to tackle a big initiative or a, a big opportunity? Yeah. I am really lucky to have our, our core team is wildly like um, uh, talented and also has such a an, uh, an important diversity of experience in the kids' media and tech space. And so we kind of like talk about what it means to be a makefully person because there has to be some element of you're really good at what you do, but also not afraid to like dip in and like jump over and, and help out in other ways or want to, right? Like, so my whole team is incredibly creative. We all have, um, we all have a love and motivation to be involved in the storytelling and kind of art and design process, though we're not all artists, right? So, there, but there's like a lot of like us as a creative team, we're really strong in that space, but we're also very strong technically. And so, um, so Miguel Montanez on my team, he's our co-founder and chief creative technologist. He is a designer developer hybrid and having him, he was the first to join full-time with, with me and makefully, um, having him kind of help lead the charge and, and lead all of our technical is critically important because that's not my strong suit. I'm content and like have a, have a, a lot of opinions about design and the ways we think about play and game design. Um, but technically I'm like, I have no idea, <laughs> you know, like it seems doable, let's do it. So he kind of oversees all of our technical side, but also because he's a designer, he has, a, he has strong, intuition um, and instincts about UX and, and designing things that are intuitive for users. And he comes from, he actually came from PBS Kids to join me. That's how we initially met. But before that, he was not in kids. So he also has like a lot of history on creating big, big products that are, um, that, you know, for different user bases and stuff. And so that combined skill set is incredibly useful. And then we do have two game designer developers, Derek and Todd on our team who are have been doing uh, game design and dev for a very long time and are, are just really good at what they do, but also very like, um, again, like technically, we have a very strong technical team, which is like the best yeah. and, and super creative. And then our art director, Allison, has a long history in illustration and animation and um, and is just very adept at like kind of being able to design across like across the needs, right? Whether it's like a kind of a, uh, a unique approach to illustration we need to bring to a certain project or helping like figure out she could, does UX support now, like all these things that she's been able to step in and like help with on the design side. And then we bring on contractors to fill the gaps when needed. So, you know, that is, uh, it can be writers, it's, it's um, songwriters and composers, it's additional hands-on for development and tech. Um, and a lot of, uh, artists too, like, uh, often we'll have like a specific aesthetic we're going for. So we'll bring in artists yeah. to help with the hand on that. Um, but yeah, it requires like a lot of close communication and collaboration and, and, um, and being able to like take things on work independently and raise your hand when you're like, I need help on this, or can someone just take this off my plate or whatever, right? A lot of that back and forth. Um, but it, I don't know, it helps. I think that's an advantage of having a, a small core team is that, that we can be right. like very like, um, we can be, we're tight, we're, we're close as people <laughs> and it helps to. I think that's super important. Um, I talk, we talk a lot about even as organizations, how do you stay small even as you grow? Yeah. And um, so we have, we have clients or people that have come on the podcast or, you know, friends that have much larger organizations, anything from, you know, a few hundred people up to thousands of people. And one of the things, I mean, you could take it toward the kind of Jeff Bezos two pizza team, which I don't, you know, like that gets overused, but this idea of like, you need to have a team that's small enough that two pizzas will feed them, okay. right? 
And, um, and so the, it's the idea that if, if you're that small, you don't have bureaucracy or you have less bureaucracy, your, your creativity is high, your, your shared understanding stays really in tune so that you make sure that you're making decisions together and that you're leaning on each other's strengths because it's not, you're never really throwing something over a wall. You're truly doing it in a, in a cross-functional collaborative way. Yep. And it sounds to me like that's how you've shaped your organization. It's not like you have a bunch of the same role. Mm -hmm. You really have chosen to bring together folks that have this kind of T-shape approach. They can go deep in one area, but they, they, they're very comfortable leaning into each other's strengths and picking up um, the stones and helping to keep, uh, move that all forward. That's a gift that, I mean, honestly, it's really hard to, to shape a team to look like that. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people would be, you know, even outside of your create your very specific creative education, children, content folk focused work, there are so many companies that would be desperate for that kind of team. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious when you, when you come into a space with that group, how do you, how do you shape the work? So how do you shape that that team gets, um, you know, an idea brought to the table? Is it something where you, you workshop something or, you know, just take me through the storyline of, of a project if, if you can. Yeah. I mean, I know every project is going to be different, but just kind of maybe a, a, a generic uh, approach to how you would, you would um, yeah. go into an initiative. Yeah. Um, it, it is uh, at the beginning, we do a lot of leapfrogging, right? And so it's kind of like who, like on the, on the developer side, like who is uh, most open to take something on and we kind of leapfrog and try then to best match in the, if we have like, um, if we have for one property, several games we're going to make, for example, we'll try to mm. frog and match the concept to the, the person who's kind of most excited about that concept or the approach to yeah, play. And so there's like, you know, and like, I always work very collaboratively with the three, uh, with Miguel, Derek and Todd, for example, when they're, we, we work very closely on like the approach to design and play. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, I plug in on every project to some extent because I'm helping kind of just oversee the overall project. And also I'm our, our, our main client communicator. I kind of am the yeah. back and forth. And you're the founder. I, I mean, we could just, we can I name that. that. You're one of the founders. There's yeah. a lot, there's a lot uh, of balls in there. I'm per the person that buys the toilet paper for the office and the, what, you know, I'm, like all the stuff. I've been there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but I mean, it's, it's a funny thing again, with having a small team, that's also like, I love to be in the day-to-day -day of all this stuff, right? I don't want to lose touch yeah. of that because then you kind of, you lose touch of the work a little bit if not having your hands in it. And so for me, it's, it is a balance of having to figure out like how I stay up here, think about like, what does the next year or two look like? And also like making sure everyone's happy down here. Um, but anyway, so uh, then there's the leapfrogging of resources and, and, um, and in particular when we're thinking about like where there are going to be collisions on like art needs, for example, or whatever, thinking about, how we make sure we've queued up like support and have like a strong bench of people that are, that we know like working with us and are yeah. able, that we know we like working with to pull in and like queue things up. Um, so really, I mean, we do try to be thoughtful to like what it, what, what each person can kind of get excited about and work on. And of course everything comes with just the work part too, right? Which is like ugh, this, this thing I have to slog through, but like hopefully there's enough kind of carrying through at the end of the day, we get to make games and make Which is super fun. for kids. And so it's hard to be like, Oh, I don't want to work on that. I mean, it's like, we're so lucky, <laughs> but it's um, super cool work. And I think what, what I'm, I'm, uh, what I'm excited to, to what I'm imagining in your environment, it, it's different because if you had an in-house team, so say when you were back at Jen Henderson, mm -hmm. like there is, there is a nature of having to balance the work, of course, across the different um, the different projects or the different um, uh, you know brands. But inevitably, when you're a well, I'm going to put agency as kind of a, a, a high level term. But when you're a service company and you're providing this service to other folks, it's not only doing this. I know we we are we're in the same kind of uh, work. It's not only doing it, but it's also managing the relationship with the client and it's managing the relationship with the potential and the budget. And, and there's so much more interplay that it, it takes a unique group of people and a unique team mm -hmm. to be able to say, not only do I want to build epic stuff mm -hmm. for that, it's, it's creative and cool and useful and valuable, 
But also I understand that service work is hard, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Managing the amount of hours in a day and the amount of budget left in the project and the the client, right? Because the client has opinions. They're part of this initiative. It's not like they're just saying, hey, will you go make us something cool and show it to us in six months? Um, um, I think that is such a, I want to give you credit because that's, that's a really hard thing to achieve and still have people believe in the mission of, oh, no, we're doing this all together. Yeah. And this is creative work and this work yeah. matters. Yeah, it, it is. It is super hard. And I think also because we care so deeply about, I mean, obviously we also like take it very seriously that what we're making is often for scale for kids, like millions of kids play every game that we make, right? That is like a huge, yeah. um, I mean, there's an honor to it. It's also like, serious work, right? Like, and, and work we do with our clients, we, we only work with people that are very thoughtful to that process and understand the weight that we, our work carries on that end. Um, but also we want to make sure that our, that our clients who often not, right. We're, we're kind of, we have to make sure that we're staying true to their, their characters, the worlds they've so carefully built, the intention of their learning goals. And that we're kind of like rounding out what their intentions are. Thoughtfully, we, we, we kind of approach everything. I think I mentioned earlier that we do a lot of co-design with kids in the work we're doing, but we also co-design with our partners a lot, right? We want to make sure that they are like, if we're proposing something that is, is new and novel, that they can fully get on board with the why behind that, that they feel heard when they, you know, if we have concerns, we try to work in as best as we can process to say processes to say, we'll give you gates where we can back out of this. If, if it's not working, like, let's just, let us prototype it. And if it doesn't work, we will figure out a way to like make it work or go take a step back. So we've been like refining our processes a lot to allow more freedom up there, up in the front part of a project so that we can, that we can keep pushing the ways we're approaching things and, but still give, give our partners like a comfort in that. Right. Cause it's scary to be like, we don't understand what you're saying. And we're like, I know, but let us bring it to life and we'll show you. <laughs> and, We'll figure it out. Because seeing is believing, right? I mean, people don't really, it, you, your team has the ability to have a vision in your head about what the potential is because you know what can and can't be yep. done. And I think one of the things that we see often is that whether it's a client or even ourselves internally is having a shared understanding of what we're all saying is, so we used to, I'm going to step back. We used to do this thing called crazy eights activity. And a crazy eight activity is basically where you say, here's an idea for what we're thinking about making. And then everybody in the room, business all the way down to designer has to sketch out eight different versions of what they think that means. And inevitably what you end up with is 52 different versions of wildly different things, right? And you go, how did we come up with 52 different visions in people's brains about what we were trying to make. And it's not until you run that experiment, that prototype that you can say, no, what we're saying is something like Mm -hmm. this. And then it's the, oh, oh, interesting. Can we do Mm -hmm. that? Is that, is that, Mm -hmm. is that viable? Like, what does that look like? How does that fit into our universe? How does, you know, and I think that's, that's a, both a responsibility. Like you say, it's a weight to bear because you're going to maybe be pushing them uh, potentially towards something risky, but also a huge reward on the other side of saying, what will it be like when kids are using mm-hmm. this, you know, then when kids are experiencing mm-hmm. this, um, I'm curious, how do you include the kids in that process? Yeah. So, um, there's, there's two approaches. One is play testing. So we bring kids in at a prototype level into our play lab, um, to, to get hands on things early. And, and, and I like in-person play testing for that because it allows us to serve the role of where the computer ultimately will take over for tutorializing or supporting kids, right? We can look for ways that we know supports need to be built in for the play, but it lets us get hands-on early on like a mechanic or an approach or just parsing of information on the screen to make sure we're going in the right direction. And so we, we try to structure our prototype play testing with a lot of intentionality around like what we're looking for, because it's obviously very far from complete. So it's like core questions that we're looking to answer. We might do a few rounds of that before we really solidify and like, okay, we all feel confident this direction is going to work. And we used to do, it used to be that we would, um, well, we used to skip right to an alpha build and not do a pl- prototype. Then we were like, we would really like to prototype before to like, t- cause we can get more interesting, right? We can like ch- test things up. And now we actually are advocating that we don't even write our game design document until after that prototype is complete. So we have like a, we get alignment around a concept we sketch it up so we all have a visual like indication of where it's going. 
we build a prototype and then we figure out like the end to end of the play loop after that. So we can figure out like, you know, so we have time to go back because we can get stuck in the loop of looking at something on paper for months Yeah, that can be like expedited. If we can just see it, get all on board with the approach and then flush it out around there for the full documentation of it. So um, that's been really helpful to kind of flip the approach that way and get us out of, out of the paper and the visual, like everyone having a different visualization of what this is going to look like or questioning, like, I don't know if it's going to work. And it's like, well, we don't either. So let's try it. <laughs> we don't know. Let's see. Um, on the other end, and this is a little easier with the older kids. Um, but, um, and I'll speak specifically to a game that we're, uh, that we've designed, um, that we're uh, still working on, but was funded through, uh, the national science foundation, SBIR program. Um, this is a game that's a physical digital game that we're designing for third to fifth graders. And so we had, we're inventing our own IP. We're inventing a new play pattern. We're inventing new technology. Uh, we're inventing new like approaches to understand, understanding how kids can um, approach collaborative problem solving together using mm. computational thinking practices. So we're trying to, we, it started with like, how do we get kids to think about computational thinking without it being attached to coding? How do we get them to think about CT as a set of problem solving practices first? So debugging is something everyone needs to understand how to do. Problem decomposition, the importance of sequence and algorithm. Those are like cross-cutting ideas everyone needs to understand. And not everyone needs to be a coder, but we all need to understand like uh, these approaches to things. And so that was kind of like the, the um, core like learning goals we were working around. But the rest of it, like we'd had, we did a lot of prototyping and actually we had uh, NSF phase one uh, uh, funding to help with the early prototyping. Then we had a department of education phase one SBIR grant to help further the idea. But because it was COVID times, like pushed us into full digital solution, mm -hmm. you know, it was like a kind of a cul-de-sac yep. that didn't, yep. didn't, uh, it didn't end up in the end product. Um, but we had a lot of like uh, things that we, we really needed a lot of iterative testing with kids on because all of it was like, was very novel, right? We're so proud of like what we ended up with, but it took so many wrong. It took so many, not quite, uh, no, it's not, that's too whatever. So we brought in, a uh, we had a group of four kids. They named themselves the game changers. We went through, like we taught them the design process. Yeah. And um, they met with us weekly through last summer and then monthly in the fall after that um, and became like our, they really were like co-designers uh, in the whole process with us because they not only helped us like figure out early on with like paper prototypes even or early things like what was going to be the right or wrong direction to choose in some of our game mechanics, but they helped us like, they helped us with character design exercises. They helped with the kind of vibe that the characters clothes are like they helped to sketch up ideas for like, well, what should these characters wear? Like everything across the board, they, they had a hand in shaping. And that is like really core to the make process of like understanding what kind of amazing experts kids are in their own lives. Right. And what they bring and what they have access and understanding of that. Like, even as a parent of a kid in that age range, that's just my kid. So I don't know what, um, a boy of that age range or what, like as a, another, obviously lots of girls have lots of different interests. And so it was like incredibly impactful to have that dedicated time. And they kept us, we had deliverables due to them, right? Every time they came in, we had to have a, another batch of deliverables ready for them. And it was like, it was like for an internal project created external stakeholders that was really useful for us to like operate against. Um, and was just like an amazing, uh, it was amazing to like put that process into place for our own project that has, you know, when you're working on client work, those, the, the constraints are different than when it's your own. And so, um, so anyway, we, all of those, we always try to find the ways to like work that in as early as is possible with impact. And it does change based on the constraints of the project, what age it's for all of those things. So, uh, how good. And what's awesome, it, we've never had an opportunity to talk to anybody that's in your specific space, especially when you're building solutions or games for for kiddos. And what I love about that is like the principles are, could everything you just talked about, I'm literally going, yeah. And what corporation, enterprise, tech company, et cetera, wouldn't want to do the exact right. same thing, right? To include their end users, to include their, their customers in the experience of building something that they want, that they need, that they will engage with, that they'll actually use so that they're helping. They're, they are part of the team shaping it. 
Um, and I think that is, that's such a, that's such a really beautiful thing. Okay. So given all that, I'm curious, you've got an incredibly cross-functional cross-collaborative team, incredibly creative and curious team. You're, you've got an incredible niche where you're able to enter a space and, and explore opportunities to bring educational world-changing views in novel ways. As you enter this space, what are things that people often get wrong? What are the things that they struggle with when they're going, hey, we just thought it would be mm -hmm. X and then it, it kind of falls apart or it doesn't go the way that, you know, that they envision it will go. Mm -hmm. What are some areas that people struggle um, either in your particular niche or when you see anyone trying to build something like what you do? Yeah. Uh, the two things that popped into my mind immediately are one is um, schedule <laughs> and getting really committed yeah. to exactly what day a deliverable should fall. Um, and we try to be like really forthcoming. Like we, uh, we completely understand the need to have a schedule and benchmarks in a project, but like, we also don't want to, if something takes another day or two, we want to take that day or two to get it right. Right. So it like proves out what it needs to prove for the sake of, of the deliverable versus like checking something off of a list. And so right. I think once people are on board with how we work and the, and the reward of waiting that couple, right? Like everyone gets on board with it, but I think upfront early in a project that can feel like there's a lot of back and forth around like, we'll name a date because you're going to stick to it. And it's like, okay, be more comfortable if it were like the week of, you know, or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. So, yeah. and that, that just comes to mind as something that it, it, it's, it, it, it's again, it's like a very understood need for like all the reasons, but I think we can forget, like, it's easy to like get caught up in the lists and the details of something and forget about the higher level, big picture and like what the, what the mm -hmm. intention is for each of those and like what, what it needs to satisfy maybe. Um, and again, I feel like over the life of a project that all, that all shakes out. It's just a kind of upfront can be a pain point. It's a real constraint. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And the other is, I think, especially for thinking about um, like platform platforms that are intended for school use, there's so much to think about in like, um, like helping evaluate what is actually critically needed to make that do what it needs to do for a teacher versus Versus things that are layered in because there's an assumption that like an administrator might want to see it or someone that makes the purchase decision versus like mm. what the kid needs to help the thing do what they need it to do. And I think that balance and the constant questioning is it's, it's good. It's part of the process. Right. But it is like that. It's what you said at the beginning, that initial list that comes through of like, it needs to have all of these things. And then we go through and, you know, ask a lot of questions about every one of them, like, the why, <laughs> like who says we need this or whatever. And like winnowing that down or reframing it or thinking about a more elegant approach to it or whatever the case may be. Um, and so I think again, in leaning more towards like the ed tech space, I think there are, um, again, the way that, uh, the way that decisions are made for sales in that pipeline now has kind of started to change the ways we think about like, what needs to be in it. Like teachers all need a dashboard and it's like, sometimes they do, but what's the purpose of the dashboard? Like what, and, and what's the data they're collecting? There's no purpose in like giving overwhelming teachers with data that they can't have, they don't have any time to look at or do anything with. Like, what, yeah. Why are we doing that? And what's useful for them to collect that helps them do their job easier, better. Like this thing you're proposing is taking the place of something else in their day. It needs to do it better. Is it doing it better? That's mm -hmm. the first thing we start with. And so, um, yeah, I think those are those are two of the things that are just tricky to overcome, right? And then it's part of the process. It's like yeah. go on the ride with us, and then on the other end, we'll see. <laughs> ah, so good. Okay. Um, okay. So I want to land on a positive note, and I'm going to give you two options, and you can take it either way you want. One is what's what's a project or an outcome that you're most proud of, of something you've made in the past, or what's something that you're really excited it's coming or that is ahead of you, but let's pick one and um, you get to highlight that thing that is like something you're just really proud of or really excited about. Um, so I, I it, this one's tricky, but I am gonna go with more, more proud of, um, even though the world can't see it yet, 
this work that we just that we're working on from the NSF funded project I just mentioned, um, the what we what we have built and achieved, and that it's all from it's all ours is uh, it, it, we not only learned so much in that process because we were creating all new everything, um, but like we we have some like real we feats of accomplishment baked in there that are like when we can tell the whole world about it, I cannot wait to tell the whole world about it. It's going to be really exciting. I love that. Yeah. Um, and then I just have to end on one more quick brag is that we actually have a game that we made with Fred Rogers Productions for a show called Alma's Way um, is nominated for an Emmy in the Children's and Family um, Emmys coming up December 16th for outstanding interactive oh media. My gosh, that's incredible. Um, and this is this is a new um, this is a new Emmys uh, that precedes the the daytime Emmys and the and the primetime Emmys. Um, yeah, but yeah. that's pretty cool to receive a nomination for. That's incredible. For that. How yeah. how cool. Okay. All right. That's I think we need to we need to wrap up on that. That's that's such an incredible feat. Unbelievable. I love everything about the way that you approach your work. Uh, I love your, your passion for your audience, for your stakeholders, for your users, children, and learning and play. Um, and I, I love that you've kept your team small and collaborative and creative and curious. Um, so I like to end by always saying thank you because doing this work, doing intentional good work is not easy, um, but the best work is usually hard, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so thank you for stepping in. Thank you for taking the risk to go after it. And thank you for doing it. Um, the world is better because you're doing it. I believe that. Uh, so so really, really cool. Uh, now, so I get to do for you is to roll out the red carpet. What? How can people um, find out more about you and I'll learn more about yeah. what you're doing? Um, so our website, makefullystudios.com is one place to kind of learn more about us and the team. And um, But then if you follow us on social, primarily Instagram, but we are, we are all the places, that's where we share more updates about uh, the work as it comes out uh, for the public to check it out um, or things. We try to kind of keep uh, a constant presence of things that we're just kind of interested in or that, that inspire us or, um, you know, interesting things to look at. So all the social media channels there, they vary, but they're all on our website, but at Makefully Studios is generally the, the handle in some way across, <laughs> across all the socials. I love it. I love it. Anna, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the this show today. So this was so much such fun. Yeah. I really appreciate it. This was a really great conversation. Thank you. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a design consultancy that helps forward-thinking leaders discover, understand, and execute on their greatest opportunities. Learn more at crema.us.